right. Uh, today's reading is Ephesians 4, 29 to 5, 2. It can be found on page 1081 of the Bibles next to your seats, as well as on screen. This is God's word. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. The word of the Lord. God of grace, as we come into this room, we come from different places and experiences this morning, and we ask that you would meet us right where we find ourselves. Whether we come with uh, great doubts today about faith, or about our future, whether we come with some certainty or some joy related to prayers that you've answered, or doors that have opened up in our life that are just really good, or maybe long overdue, maybe you've been present in a way that we thought was, um, that we just didn't imagine was possible before. Um, but also we sit here and if there's varying levels of hurt or wounds or needs for your grace and your love, we sit broken in these chairs. And we're more broken than we care to admit. And our lives are more messy than we want or those around us to know. And uh, your story says that um, you, through Jesus, move towards the broken and messy world and you take it on your shoulders. You move towards broken lives. You carry the weight of our brokenness and you usher us in in a way that we know that we are valid in your presence. You have made us valid. You have made us acceptable before you through Jesus. Would you move towards us with that kind of grace, that accepting, loving, embracing grace amidst our hurt, wounds, mess, sin, and brokenness this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to talk this morning about uh, Vegas Superman and Flagstaff Elvis. These are are a couple of places that we went on our journey this summer uh, during our sabbatical. We went went in the car for about five weeks and and went to a lot of places. And uh, when we were in Las Vegas, we, we were on the Fremont Experience, which is sort of an older Vegas strip. And there was a lot of street performer type people out, you know, the ones that dress up and they're, they're impersonators really. They, they dress up as someone um, or just they dress up really silly and ridiculous or inappropriate. And the idea is, you know, wouldn't it be funny to have your picture taken with this person or wouldn't, wouldn't it be cool? So we met Vegas Superman and he kind of snuck up on us. He was, he was like a wandering street impersonator. And so we, he kind of trapped us. He kind of sucked us in and kind of you know, connected with our kids a little bit first, and he was a little creepy. <laughs> he was, um, you know, his, his suit looked like at one time, a few decades ago, it was shiny and fresh and new. But now it had about a half inch of uh, too loose everywhere and kind of baggy. His, you know, he did have that little curly piece of hair just perfect on his forehead, but everything else seemed a little grimy and aged and there were spots on different parts of his tights and so it was just kind of you know there were people there were people getting their picture taken with him but you know you, you could tell by the looks on their faces 
that it wasn't their most enjoyable Vegas experience. And they, they may have been giving him a dollar afterwards just because they thought, well, maybe he can get something to eat, you know, or maybe he can, this will help him get on his feet. So he felt, you know, it's one of the, he, he was an impersonator, but it felt like he was a, you know, he was a cheap imitation. And you, you walk away feeling a little sad and depressed by that experience. Then there was Flagstaff Elvis. So that was Vegas Superman. There was Flagstaff Elvis, and we rolled into Flagstaff into a KOA, and we didn't know what was going on. We heard music. We saw lights. It was dark. We were coming in late, and we saw there was a crowd of people in this building on this area of this campsite, and it seemed like it was really alive and happening, and, and we, didn't, we were just setting up camp, so we didn't get to enjoy it. But the next night, it was happening again. The, Kenny Lee, the Elvis impersonator, was at this campsite, and at night he would do his show, his Elvis show. And it was really good. <laughs> it was great. I mean, he, was, he, he, he looked like Elvis, and I think that helped. He really had the look down. Um, and he, you know, his, his voice wasn't that great and strong, and his movements were a little tame. Um, but his clothes were perfect and shiny, and he had the look... And he had a little sparkle in his eye as he came around and shook everyone's hand and hugged, you know, the women uh, who, who remember, you know, you know how it is. There, there's just certain people they remember Elvis. And, you know, he was good enough. He, he was a genuine copy that people really bought it. And you could sense the vibe of, of these people who remembered Elvis, the real Elvis, just, just kind of buying it and, and, and just going there and letting themselves believe, here's Elvis again. He had that charisma and that spark. And so today I want to talk about, you know, the difference between a cheap imitation and a genuine uh, imitator. In many ways, um, it, no matter where you are in the, the spiritual spectrum, if you're exploring faith or, or many, many, many years down the journey of faith, I think you want to get to the end of it. I think you want to find yourself at evaluation point saying, not, uh, you know, do I have a cheap imitation here? But you want to find yourself saying, this, yes, this is, this is genuine. I have a faith that is genuine. My, you know, in the Christian lingo, my imitation of Christ, right? because that's some biblical lingo that we kind of go with, my imitation of Christ is genuine. It's not just a superficial, phony, baloney put on that when hard times come is just going to be stripped away and shown to be fake. So we want to get to the genuine, and I think this is a pretty good place in Scripture to look. Um, because in this letter uh, to the Ephesus church, the Apostle Paul deals a lot with getting them to understand what is the real deal, what is the real Christian faith, what is its foundation, what does it look like. So the Apostle Paul, he's writing, he's actually imprisoned, which would happen from time to time as he would go to these different cities and, and begin churches. He's imprisoned and he's writing from prison to a church that he got a chance to spend a couple of years with as he started a church there. When he was in Ephesus, he came there and started talking with a Jewish synagogue, and that, those are the people that have some religious spiritual context for what Jesus was all about. And he would always start there, but a lot of times, like in Ephesus, that, that got him somewhere, got him a few folks interested, but then he launched off into a more public arena with people who had absolutely no context for Jesus, church, Christianity. Imagine, I mean, imagine how different that is really from us today. If, if you would say, you know, if, if you were to say to people, um, yeah, I'm, I'm actually checking out a church. I'm actually starting to go to this, this church. I'm hanging around Christians. 
you say anything like that to most of your friends, and they would actually have some amount of context to put that within. They would have some framework that they would put that in, whether good or bad. They would have some impression of what that means. Um, and you might even get a sense that, like, I'm not going to say that to certain friends because they'll then put me in a certain category, right? But there is almost, I mean, almost any, everyone would have some framework for what that means. And often they would attach a certain ethical morality kind of quadrant. And, you know, they, they would attach ethical uh, beliefs along with that, how you live. Imagine that you would say to somebody, you'd say that, and their response would be, like everybody, to, to every single person you would say that to would say, oh, interesting, what's that? You just imagine that that, that would, stop. everywhere you went, you would say, oh yeah, I'm checking out this, this, it relates to Jesus, and it's a group of people that come together and talk about this man, Jesus, and they call themselves Christians, and people go, huh, what's, tell me more about that. I don't, I've never even heard of that. So that's kind of the context. We have no framework, no foundation, and even though the Apostle Paul spent two years there kind of building some foundation, he's still writing to them, and it's very clear that in this group there is, people are all over the map. That, that sen- any sense of a foundation of what this means, Paul is not making assumptions as he does this. And so he, and, and as he begins to, to write, he's trying to build the genuine faith. What is it to be genuine? So there's some layers I want to analyze. Like layer one is sort of the superficial layer that he... And you get a sense of the, the um, chaotic um, rowdiness of this group of people that he's writing to. Because it's a group of people that he has these different like, little quick teachings and rules that he throws out. It gives you a sense of who he's writing to. He has to say, don't get drunk. He has to say, children, obey your parents. Um, he has to say, slave masters, don't threaten your slaves. Because in God's eyes, you're both on the same level. And he asks, he goes on, it gets even, even more kind of laughable and extreme. He says things like, if any of you is stealing, you should steal no longer. I mean, don't you get a little bit of a sense of like, well, duh. You know, like if, if we're at all in some kind of spiritual growth, you know, program, isn't, that, isn't something like that really obvious? And another one, let there be no brawling amidst your group. You know, this kind of angry fighting outbursts and debates. Let's, let's try to have less of that in this community. I mean, just, just kind of think about all those things thrown together in community. It gives you a sense of their lack of a framework. So layer one in this, in this letter is kind of just some, some really superficial basic rules, kind of just some, some gentle, big picture nudging into the right direction of what this uh, Jesus thing is all about. Um, we need to clear out a bunch of clutter. And then he, he does get into different... Uh, there's another layer you can see woven throughout this letter where he talks about very maybe similar things, but he deals with them on a, a slightly lo- deeper level. So, so instead of talking about brawling, he deals with anger, and he might have a principle or a rule about anger. You get, you get the sense. He, he goes a little deeper. And so, he'll, so there's uh, about four different things that you see woven through this letter. And there's more than four, but four kind of biggies that you see repeated are anger and speech and greed and sexual morality. So at, at times he gives, he gets a little more into like, this is a, this is a principle mode. And think, think one layer deeper about what's going on with your behavior. So you end up seeing in this letter actually, in and around where we read, before what we read and after what we read, well, it feels like a lot of kind of rule, giving out rules and principles about 
how Christians live in the midst of various theology and description of who Jesus is. But basically, if you only have those two layers, if you read through this, this letter and you only have those two layers, and that's all you go with, you're going to be more in the realm of a cheap imitation. All you're doing is trying to follow certain rules and principles that you've been taught to do. But that sense of like something real from within, moving out into this world, won't be there. You actually need to go another layer deeper. Otherwise, you're for sure going to only meet up against your, your limits as a cheap imitator. And Paul does exactly that. It kind of like if you're reading, skimming fast, you'll, you'll go right past it. But it was right there in the heart of what we read today. He goes deeper. He goes more into a core set of things that you need to have for the genuine kind of imitate, imitator of Christ to come out. And this is where he does it in verse 32. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as In Christ, God forgave you. Following God's example, therefore, so that's imitation language, following God's example, therefore, um, as dearly loved children and walk in the way of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself for us as a fragrant fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. That's where he gets into what I want to call the, the core identity and the core encounter that leads towards a genuine faith. What's your identity? Your core identity here is as a dearly beloved child of God. As a beloved child of God. That's, five, that's chapter 5, verse 1. Follow God's example, therefore, as Dearly loved children. Do you see how there's, there is the imitate part, but there's like a, a deeper reason. There's a deeper anchor for where your imitating comes from. And it's an identity issue. Who are you? I think a huge, huge task on a daily level, on a weekly level, on a yearly level for a Christian, a huge task for you on this journey is, is to get your identity right And Christianity shatters any shallow expectations that you have. Because it's not just adding, like, you know, most of your friends are going to think that's why you go to church, just to add some ethical, morality, kind of good good person things to your life. It shatters that shallow expectation. And says that this there's something here that's going to transform who you are, not just what you do, it's going to transform who you are. And it's this identity. It's something that you are already. It's been given to you by what God has done and it's just held out to you. So you can either decide to live in it and kind of embrace that identity or like, you know, teenagers are prone to do, like to say, like, I don't want anything to do with this family even though, you know, you're still a part of that family, right, as a teenager, but you're saying, I'm out of here, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to act like I'm not a part of this family. And that's kind of a, a good metaphor for what lies before us if you're you know, pondering the Christian faith and trying to live within it, is, is that 
there's an identity that has now, is just true about you. It's not the question of whether the teenager is part of that family or not. It's just a question of whether they're going to kind of say, yes, I'll embrace that family identity, or say, no, I am not. Don't associate me with that. And that's sort of where we're at with the identity. I, what I like about that is in, in the Bible, it's so rock solid. It's so definitive that God has made the way, has made, in a sense, your adoption papers legitimate 2,000 years ago on the cross. It's sealed. It's done. So it just sits, stands before you to say, are you going to embrace it and grab hold of it or not? Are you going to see yourself walk around with your head high with the kind of confidence that comes, absolute confidence day in and day out? I am a beloved child of God. Talk about a core identity issue that will show itself in what you do. I think it's important to, to just belabor this point a little more even and to, to really say it this way, that, that your identity as God's beloved child is not something that you're hoping someday to, to get into the family if you handle yourself well enough on this journey. It's, it's not an end of your journey of faith. It's actually the beginning. It's actually the inception. It's, it's at, at go. It's at the beginning it's offered to you and not some kind of reward if you're really good. And if you want to know for sure that that's true, just remember again who is being written to. Remember this rowdy, chaotic group of stealing brawlers. And he says, you are dearly beloved children of God. Do you have that voice in your head at all that says, oh, does God love me? You know? Remember who Paul is saying, it's done. It's a sealed deal. You, now you just have to decide whether you embrace that identity or not. Oh yeah, God loves you. You are a dearly beloved child of God. There's nothing more certain than that in the Christian faith. And so that's kind of part one of the core identity in this passage. It's just your identity. I don't know how new that is for you. For some of us, that's a radical switch on how we approach God. I'm accepted in or, in, so that I obey. Not I obey so that I might be accepted. But then we also move on to kind of, we look at that a little deeper, and we see that in these verses as well, where it says, and walk in the way of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself for us as a fragrant, fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Um. Not only is there an identity, but there is an encounter. So there's a core identity, and that core identity really springs out of what this verse says, of what Christ has done for us. There is an encounter that the person exploring the good news of Jesus, and that good news is your new status, your beloved, you're loved by God, you're his child. That's the good news that's true. And as you explore that, you need to keep encountering the true actions of God on your behalf. You kind of have to be in, always in rehearsal mode if you really want to grow in your faith. Rehearsing, oh yeah, why is it true that I am God's beloved? Well, it's because of Jesus and what he's done on the cross. And as you live amidst that kind of those loving actions God has done on your behalf, as you marvel over them, as you put your life in places where those will be spoken to you, like, like here, you're here today in this place where we talk about those. And in your daily life, looking into scripture, praying, uh, meeting in a small group, that talks about Jesus and prays and discusses the gospel, 
you're encountering more and more those loving actions. And you know what happens? When you are used to encountering God's gracious approach to you, his actions on your behalf, that actually becomes contagious. So you've got your identity in place as his beloved. You're seeing over and over again, remembering how loving he is in your life. It becomes contagious. It starts to flow out. So now you're not just kind of putting on a grimy old costume trying to pretend to be, you know, and it's some kind of imposter of someone. It's actually kind of, it just kind of comes out of you. You just, you, you play the role naturally because deep down inside of yourself, you've been transformed by your identity and by your encounter with God. It's contagious. I want to close by uh, reading a couple pages from The Grapes of Wrath where we see how encountering loving actions becomes contagious. The setting is like a gas station slash little cafe diner on, along Route 66 in the middle of the Dust Bowl as people were fleeing to California. just going to read a couple pages, a few minutes. The man turned off the hose and screwed uh, on the cap again. The little boys took the hose from him and they upended it and drank thirstily. The man took off his dark stained hat and stood with a curious humility in front of the screen door. Could you see your way to sell us a loaf of bread, ma'am? May said, this ain't a grocery store. We got bread to make sandwiches. I know, ma'am, his humility was insistent. We need bread and there ain't nothing for quite a piece, they say. If we sell bread, we're going to run out. May's tone was faltering. We're hungry, the man said. Why don't you buy a sandwich? We got nice sandwiches, hamburgs. We'd sure admire to do that, ma'am, but we can't. We got to make a dime do all of us. And he said embarrassedly, we ain't got but a little. May said, you can't get no loaf of bread for a dime. We only got 15 cent loaves. From behind her, Al, the cook, growled, God Almighty, May, give him bread. We'll run out before the bread truck comes. Run out then, goddammit, said Al. And he looked sullenly down at the potato salad he was mixing. May shrugged her plump shoulders and looked at the truck drivers to show them what she was up against. She held the screen door open and the man came in, bringing a smell of sweat with him. The boys edged in behind him and they went immediately to the candy case and stared in, not with craving or with hope or even with desire, but just with a kind of wonder that such things could be. They were alike in size and their faces were alike. One scratched his dusty ankle with the toenails of his other foot. The other whispered some soft message and then they straightened their arms so that their clenched fit fists in the overall pockets showed through the thin blue cloth. May opened a drawer and took out a long wax paper wrapped loaf. This here is a 15 cent loaf. The man put his hat back on his head. He answered with inflexible humility. Won't you, can't you see your way to cut off 10 cents worth? Al said snarlingly, God damn it, May, give him the loaf. <laughs> the man turned toward Al. No, we want to buy 10 cents worth of it. We got it figured awful close, mister, to get to California. May said resignedly, you can have this for 10 cents. That'd be robbing you, ma'am. 
Go ahead, Al says you can take it. She pushed the wax paper loaf across the counter. The man took a deep leather pouch from his rear pocket, untied the strings, and spread it open. It was heavy with silver and with greasy bills. May sound funny to be so tight, he apologized. We got a thousand miles to go, and we don't know if we'll make it. He dug in the pouch with a forefinger, located a dime, and pinched in for it. When he put it down on the counter, he had a penny with it. He was about to drop the penny back into the pouch when his eye fell on the boys frozen before the candy counter. He moved slowly down to them. He pointed in the case at big, long sticks of striped peppermint. Is them penny candy, ma'am? May moved down and looked in. Which ones? There, them stripey ones. The little boys raised their eyes to her face and they stopped breathing. Their mouths were partly open. Their half-naked bodies were rigid. Oh, them. Well, no, them's two for a penny. Well, give me two then, two then ma'am. He placed the copper scent carefully on the counter. The boys expelled their breath softly. May held the long sticks out. Take them, said the man. They reached out timidly, each took a stick, and they held them down at their sides and did not look at them. But they looked at each other, and their mouth corners smiled rigidly with embarrassment. Thank you, ma'am. The man picked up the bread and went out the door, and the little boys marched stiffly behind him. The red striped sticks held tightly against their legs. They leaped like chipmunks over the front seat and onto the top of the load, and they burrowed back out of sight like chipmunks. The man got in and started the car, and with a roaring motor and a cloud of blue oily smoke, the ancient Nash climbed up on the highway and went on its way to the west. From inside the restaurant, the truck drivers and May and Al stared after them. Big Bill, one of the truck drivers, Big Bill wheeled back. Them wasn't two for a cent candy, he said. What's that to you, May said fiercely. Them was nickel apiece candy, said Bill. We got to get going, said the other man. We're dropping time. They reached in their pockets. Bill put a coin on the counter, and the other man looked at it and reached again and put down a coin. They swung around and walked to the door. So long, said Bill. May called, hey, wait a minute, you got change. Go to hell, said Bill. <laughs> and the screen door slammed. May watched them get into the great truck, watched it lumber off in low gear, and heard the shift up the whining gears to cruising ratio. Ow, she said softly. He looked up from the hamburger he was patting thin and stacking between wax papers. What do you want? Look there. She pointed at the coins beside the cups. Two half dollars. Al walked near and looked and then went back to his work. I don't know how much I need to point out. I, th I think it's obvious. But isn't it cool? Starts out with one act. Just, just the grouchy guy behind the counter saying, give him the bread. Give him the bread. First act of love. And what's the second one? I think the second one is the dad finding that penny and thinking about a small act of kindness to his sons. And then the kind of snowball effect happens because then there's May giving away 
10 cents worth of candy for one cent. And then when the truckers realize the, the snowballing continues because the first one gives half a dollar, then the second one looks at it and sees his act of generosity and gives another. That, my friends, is a perfect example of what it's like to just be in the middle of an experience and an encounter of God's gracious love and forgiveness for you. Let us pray. God, may your grace come alive in our lives so much that love flows from our lives naturally, not as folks who are screwing up their religiosity really tight so that they might get everything exactly right, but people who have been changed by your love because we walk in your love. We know who we are, and we know what you've done. And as we live in that and rehearse that, may you just bring about spontaneous acts of love for those around us that we never could have planned or imagined. Turn us into those kind of people and into that kind of church in this city. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.